ECDC On Air. The podcast of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. Keeping up to date with European epidemiology. Hello, welcome and thanks for tuning in to ECDC On Air, the podcast of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. I'm your host Lee, recording from our headquarters in Stockholm, Sweden. On today's episode, we're speaking to two of our communication experts, Katalin Berkeru and Nicholas Berrystrand. Both of them have spent the past few months working with the WHO to address the Ukrainian refugee crisis in Poland and in Romania. These are stories from their missions. So today we're joined by not one but two guests, Katalin Berkeru and Nicholas Berrystrand. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Both of you work here at ECDC in the communications section. Um, could you tell us briefly a little bit about your background and how you came to work at ECDC? Katalin, we'll start with you. Thank you. I'm a communication professional. I have 15 years of experience and before joining ECDC I worked with WHO in Bangladesh as communication officer and among other activities I was involved in documenting from communication perspective the health response towards the Rohingya refugees crisis from 2017 and onwards. With ECDC, I've been since uh, March uh, 2021 working as a risk communication officer covering several disease programs. And Nicholas? Uh, So I've been here in ECDC for about uh, four years and a half now. I used to uh, work with other healthcare uh, type organizations uh, like um, uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. I was with them for about seven years. Uh, working in many different countries, uh, also covering the the refugee uh, health situation for um, for refugees coming into Europe, um, especially during the 2015 crisis. So over the summer, you both were on uh, ECDC missions uh, in Poland and Romania, respectively. What was your mission based on, and what was your remit? So I was deployed in Romania, working with uh, WHO as a risk communication officer. And uh, the job was to address the risk communication problems uh, that Ukrainian community was facing. Uh, Romania is currently hosting over uh, 80,000 people, but uh, hundreds of thousands of people have uh, transited the country. So my area of work was to translate the information from a technical perspective in an adequate uh, language, both for the community of Ukrainians, but also for the health work practitioners, NGOs and other frontline workers, basically to make the refugee communities to know what are their rights, how do they access and navigate the health system. Okay, could you just briefly explain what risk communications is? In theory, there are many definitions, but let's say a simple one is that um, risk communication is the information, advice and opinions coming from experts and addressed to people and communities that are facing um, a threat. And this information should help them to take informed decisions in order to protect themselves from an imminent danger or from a future one. So basically it is how you produce and address the information to a certain community in order for them to be able to uh, advert a specific uh, danger or to protect themselves better in case that uh, event happens. Nicholas, you were in Poland. What was your mission like? 
Uh, it was good, yeah. I was in Poland in uh, the town of Krakow for about six weeks and being deployed then to work principally as an external communications officer for representing WHO mainly. But in Krakow, WHO has set up this uh, like a multi-agency refugee health extension of the, the Copenhagen WHO Euro headquarters. So the, the purpose of this uh, and the, the kind of whole concept is that under one roof, you will have a multi-agency office. So you'll have not just WHO, but other agencies like UNICEF and UNHCR, ECDC um, as well. And there was also a few visits by other agencies like UNFPA and IOM. So the idea was to, to have people, agencies that are working with the refugee health response to the Ukraine crisis, to have them sit all under one roof and uh, you know, in that way, you could better create synergies and, you know, easier share information and so on. So, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting experience to be there. I worked principally on support to the various offices in the region, so not just Poland, but also neighboring countries like uh, Slovakia, Czechia, Bulgaria, Moldova, Romania as well, uh, a little bit. So... So covering, having a kind of a regional perspective on communication, but also working with gathering human interest stories to highlight the situation for Ukrainian refugees that have fled to Europe, and also to work with media, mainly the, the big international media, to continue to put a spotlight on the, on the refugee situation. Was your deployment in Romania, Catalin, was that similar to Nicholas's in Poland, where you were a multi-agency hub? More or less. So basically, my deployment in Romania, as I mentioned before, was on risk communication. Indeed, we had to work and collaborate with a multitude of organizations, including UN agencies, NGOs, government institutions, and so on. So basically, my work was to first assess what are the needs of information for the Ukrainian community, to conduct uh, discussions and interviews with a multitude of other actors that are involved in this response, such as NGOs, public organizations, international organizations, etc. Then to produce and distribute information materials that are filling in those information gaps. And this is a process which is a continuous one. You don't simply find an information gap, fill it and that's it. Because the needs are evolving. This is why an integral part of the risk communication is also community engagement. There is a continuous need to be in touch with the community to understand their continuous needs and how you can better address those needs. So this is a little bit different than what uh, Nicholas was doing because my main focus was on the refugees and on their communities. How can they be better informed about their legal rights concerning access to health, how to navigate the system, how to access different, uh, different tiers of the health system in Romania. So I think uh, in, in the sense of looking at who were the target audiences, I think for Catalina it was mainly the, the Ukrainian refugees, whereas for me it was more the, the general public. With you both doing quite different things, how would you say the situation in Poland and Romania was different? So I would start from the country perspective and uh, I can tell you that what I have seen at the first stages of, the, of my deployment was a different situation than two or three months after. In the first part of the incoming fluxes of refugees, most of them were mainly trusted in the country, and therefore the health needs were quite uh, reduced to emergency healthcare. After a large number of people started to settle in Romania, of course, it was a huge need to understand, first of all, what are their health needs, 
and how those needs can be uh, met. Here we are talking either about offering vaccines to the children or addressing uh, chronic diseases. So first we have to discuss with the Ukrainian communities to understand what are those needs. Then we had to discuss with the healthcare providers, public health authorities, and not lately to the uh, numerous NGOs and frontline uh, workers that were helping the Ukrainians. So gathering the information from all these parts was an important task because after that, based on those first inputs, we have to produce the information materials. We had to test them with the uh, Ukrainian community to see if the language was accurate, if they understood what we wanted to say, and then to deliver those communication materials to the uh, community. And when I'm saying delivering, here it's another challenge, because when we are addressing to a certain community, we cannot go on the mass communication channels. We have to get the specific channels used by these communities. And for example, Telegram channels, which is a sort of WhatsApp, is something that is extremely useful when you want to communicate to Ukrainian communities, because in each major cities, they are linked, they have this type of channels that can be of thousands of people. And this is the way where you best uh, communicate your information. But of course, it's always a continuous process. Gather information, transform it into a communication material, then uh, follow it, get the feedback, and then do again the follow-up to see if there are new needs, additional needs. Okay. And Nicholas, how would you say that was quite different to what you saw in Poland? Well, I think contextually, I I mean, I wasn't in Romania, so I, it's hard for me to, to, to give a kind of comparison, but I think it's, uh, it's probably more similar than the differences. I mean, I think in, in most refugee receiving countries, there was, uh, you know, a, a big public support for the refugee reception. And there's been many very commendable initiatives from the civil society and also from the national health system in order to receive uh, all these people in need. So I think even though it's been, uh, you know, a big stress on the systems, overall, it's been a, in a very kind of, um, you know, uh, something that to applaud to, to the countries that have received the highest burden. I mean, Poland is the country that has received the most refugees in Europe. So over a million people have come to Poland. But I think, uh, you know, something that's important is, is to look at how does this evolve in time? Everything comes to a point where people start maybe to get a little bit less interested in the response than earlier, which is a natural thing. It does require that people make some sacrifices and and we'll have to see how things evolve because some Ukrainians that I spoke to in Poland, they said that they were afraid that there would be less of a kind of a welcome reception if there were new waves of refugees coming into Poland from Ukraine. What we saw now actually was that there was quite a lot of people that were returning to Ukraine. That might seem very paradoxical if you consider what's, I mean, obviously the war is far from over. Things are uh, definitely not safe in Ukraine, but there are obviously some parts of Ukraine that are less affected by the war than others. So there's many reasons why people want to would want to go back. Many people left very quickly. They left all their belongings behind. They left loved ones behind. So to actually go back for at least a you know a temporary period of time is an option for many people and something that many people will consider doing. So. We did see that there was a lot of people that were returning. I think um, by the middle of August, there had been 10 million uh, border crossings out of Ukraine into the EU. But in the same time, uh, we're now comparing from the beginning of the war until the middle of August, 
there was four million people going the other way, actually going into Ukraine. So it's quite significant. So I think it's important. And this is where communication comes in as well, that people need to understand why is it that people are actually going back to Ukraine now. It's not because things are all fine and you know everything is is okay there, but it's actually a need. And now with the coming of the winter months and with a looming energy crisis, and we don't know how the war is going to develop, we might see new waves of refugees coming back. So then to actually have health systems prepared for that and to have them prepared also requires the support of public opinion is something which I think there is a role for communication here. And uh, I felt that was one of the things I was there to do to to try and contribute to to get stories into the media. We did uh, some interviews with our emergency coordinator for Ukraine um, to media like Reuters and, and Politico. And uh, so in order to kind of, you know, continue to have the spotlight on the situation, when we approached this media, they, they were actually very uh, welcoming and very, very thankful that we had approached them because there had not been that much coverage lately. They had not really had that many updates of the situation lately. I mean, there was a lot of coverage in the first early, uh, the earlier months. So I think that's, that's an important thing. And that's where communication comes in again, that, you know, you, you can contribute to shaping public opinion. And I think it's important that public opinion uh, remains interested in the conflict, that people understand the needs and have sympathy and empathy for the refugees. So how can refugees fleeing from Ukraine access healthcare in countries that are hosting them? Yeah, it's actually, well, there is this uh, temporary protection directive by the EU, which basically grants the people that have left uh, Ukraine because of the war the same access to healthcare as ordinary EU citizens. So that's in theory how, how it works. In practice, it's being implemented perhaps a little bit differently in different countries, but that's how it is. Uh, so they can go to the, the GPs and, and get access to healthcare. What we have seen is that there, there are some barriers to accessing healthcare, more from a kind of um, level of, let's say, um, I mean, there was a study done in, in Romania, maybe Catalin can expand a little bit on this, but uh, WHO did this um, behavioral insight study on uh, what is it that, is there anything that prevents people from accessing care? On paper, they, they have the same access. There will be issues such as language barrier, cultural barriers, knowledge of the system. Uh, that will be things that, 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 that will hinder people from getting the care that they need. So one way that, that I looked at uh, through my communication lens in Poland was uh, how they were trying to integrate Ukrainian healthcare staff into the system. So that, let's say, if you are a Ukrainian fleeing, that you get treated also by a Ukrainian. In many ways, that can be useful for the, the reasons I mentioned, uh, the, the language barrier, the cultural barrier, and so on. So I, I visited a clinic actually where there was mainly just Ukrainian healthcare stuff. So it's also something that WHO uh, was working on, on a sort of technical cooperation level with the Polish health authorities to try and fast track the accreditation process of Ukrainian medical staff so that they could faster come in to the Polish health system. Maybe Katalin can explain a little bit more about the particulars about Romania for this. Yes, thank you very much. Indeed, it was very interesting to see uh, this study and um, 
Behavioral insights is one of the components that risk communication is based because in order to produce risk communication materials and to address the needs of the communities, you need first to understand them. You need first to understand what are they thinking at, what are they uh, seeing as a barrier, if it's a true barrier or not. And for example, one of the issues that was revealed by this BI study was that the communities, uh, in many cases, were reluctant to access health services because they perceived it as being costly, though it was completely for free. Another issue was that they were relying a lot on the volunteers and uh, on the NGOs that were helping them. So they were relying on these uh, people also for guiding them to the medical system. But actually, these volunteers had very little information on what the refugees' rights are in terms of health or how they can direct them. So one of the actions from our side, based on this BI study, was to produce information material, sort of a Q&A, for these frontline workers. So if they have different cases of people wanting, I don't know, oncology treatment or um, eyes check or hepatitis, drug abuse, etc., to be able to direct them to the proper uh, places. These were some of the uh, barriers. Of course, there were some barriers which were not very easily to surmount, like language barrier. Romanian language is a very different uh, one than the Ukrainian one. So you have to improvise a lot to find the translators, Google Translate. There are now devices on the market that are translating between two people. But yeah, there are still a lot of uh, challenges, but I do believe that uh, risk communication has the capacity and the possibility to remove some of these uh, barriers. I can also mention just in Poland that the WHO participated in um, putting together the implementation of this decentralized drug-resistant TB project for Ukrainian people with drug-resistant TB. It was also open to the Polish patients with this disease, but basically the idea was to move care out of the hospitals and introduce more kind of ambulatory home-based care. And uh, in particular for the refugees, uh, this was seen as a, a kind of way to overcome an access barrier because a lot of the refugees, you know, would have be, be women, normally also caring for children and uh, to be hospitalized for the duration of your treatment is often, you know, quite inconvenient. You cannot, you know, go on with your daily life as normal. This might be necessary for some patients that, you know, have big difficulties in adhering to treatment. So they need to be very closely monitored and supervised. So then it might be preferable to have them in the hospital. But for many, it was deemed that it's actually not necessary and that they can be treated at home. So this was a project that uh, just as I was leaving Poland, uh, uh, WHO, along with uh, several other partners, national and international partners, were implementing this project uh, for Ukrainian refugees. Just wanted to make that point as well, that there are you know these kind of innovative models of care that were being implemented in various places. Just to add also on what Nicholas was saying, that transitioning different models or transitioning to different models, one of the aspects covered in the early stages of our assessment in Romania, and also that came out uh, through the behavioral insight study, was that for the Ukrainians, it was the most at hand way of uh, accessing healthcare was by uh, calling the emergency number 112, which was the ambulance. And of course, this cannot be sustainable on the long run. 
just overburdening the emergency healthcare system for very minor issues that can be easily solved by a general practitioner is simply not sustainable. So one of the action was to try as much as possible to inform Ukrainian communities on what type of healthcare they can get at the different tiers of the system. If they have a certain problem, maybe the best person to uh, treat it is general practitioner, yeah? including vaccination. So vaccinations, go to the GP. For more serious conditions, go to a specialized doctor and call the ambulance only for life-threatening situations. And it has been seen that this kind of messages worked and more and more people started to use indeed primary healthcare and secondary healthcare and not that much emergency healthcare system. Would you say you saw a successful outcome of changing people's perceptions of using this 112 number? For sure we contributed. But when we are talking about changing perception and changing behaviors, there is always a multitude of factors. So, yes, I think we had a contribution. But for example, a lot of information is shared within the Ukrainian community among themselves. So one person goes to the hospital, see that they have access, see that they can be treated, then shares the uh, information back to the community. So I think it is a multitude of factors. But yeah, I like to believe that I contributed to this. And uh, yeah, it was one of the successful outcomes. Nicholas, you mentioned that it's important we keep visibility on the crisis. So that's in the spotlight and that the support for refugees is maintained. What are some of the ways that we can continue to do that? Yes, I mean, I mentioned already the work with the media. I think it's it's one of the the best ways to reach a large audience to put to, to encourage media to go and and report on these things. I mean, I also work with uh, you know gathering human interest stories. I think they are probably a bit less impactful if you just put them on, let's say, the ECDC website or the WHO website, which would not have the the same readership. But nevertheless. It's uh, it's important. I mean, I interviewed uh, quite a few people at the the Krakow train station. Krakow is is only a few hours away from the border to Ukraine, and uh, it's it's an important uh, transit hub. Uh, I also visited some border towns on the border to Ukraine. It's it's interesting to see how you know when you walk around the Krakow, it's it's very visible everywhere. The Ukrainian presence. Uh, I don't have an exact figure of exactly how many people are in Krakow uh, from Ukraine, but uh, you see every day there's, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations in the main square, Ukrainian flags everywhere. There's various support organizations that provide various types of assistance and help. So you see, uh, you know, uh, where where people can go during the day and and get various types of assistance. So it's really, really present. So at the train station there on one of the platforms, there was a, a small clinic. I was there several times and trying to look for you know interesting human interest stories the, there was one that struck me quite quite a lot which was an old lady she was like 82 83 years old and she had collapsed in the middle of the train station and they had the staff of the train station had found her and called the clinic and uh, basically this woman was was completely confused she didn't know which country she was in she had all these bags with her but she there was nobody there to help her or anything so they had to put her there in in the clinic in the temporary shelter that was next to the clinic. It was just a, a very sad scene to see. And eventually, the staff of the clinic could get in touch with her family that was back in Ukraine, so that uh, you know uh, eventually she was helped to to get back to Ukraine through a like a medical transport that they had arranged to take her back. It links back to what I was saying earlier that 
you know, going back to Ukraine might seem like a crazy thing, but for some people it's it might be the best thing. Uh, she was probably sent to Poland after the beginning of the war and arrived. Uh, God knows what she had been doing because she was not able to actually actually explain that. She had no memory, really. But uh, what was certain was that she was very vulnerable and quite helpless and really would probably be better off to have somebody back home to care for her. So that was just the reality. And a lot of uh, women, perhaps a bit older, you know, were unable to find work in the host countries. And eventually they maybe decide that it's better to to actually risk it and go back. So uh, these kind of stories I, I try to highlight by interviewing people and writing stories about them and then publishing them on the WHO website. That's one thing, but I think media is a very important tool to get across to a lot of people. So uh, they should not be underestimated. Okay, what would you say was one of the more difficult aspects of your mission? I think maybe the one of the more difficult aspects was to to connect with these the, with the right people. It takes a bit of effort. Uh, I told you earlier I, I used to work with uh, MSF Doctors Without Borders that are more kind of like uh, on the ground and they run their own projects and you go to their clinics and you find patients. Whereas here it was a bit more liaising and linking up with other organizations that were treating patients on the ground. WHO had more of a technical cooperation role, more working with the health authorities at central level rather than having healthcare staff on the ground. So for me, that was, you know, to try and get these interesting human interest stories I, I needed to to do first quite a bit of research and linkages with other organizations. At Catalan, what would you say some of the challenges that you faced in Romania were? At each stage of this situation, there were the different challenges. But I think now one of the challenges that is very obvious is the fact that uh, most of the NGOs, most of the organizations that were working in support of the Ukrainian communities, they ran out of resources and they started to withdraw themselves from this support. Of course, at this moment, there are many other resorts that are employed in, for the Ukrainians. The government is doing uh, a lot of things. There are stable institutions. But still, those organizations were the ones that the Ukrainians were uh, relying on to support them with different aspects of their life, in finding a job, in uh, learning about the city, in understanding how uh, the Romanian society and culture works. With these organizations withdrawing, also from the health perspective, it's a problem, because as I said before, we have produced a lot of communication materials and distributed them to these frontline workers no matter if it's NGOs or other type of organizations. Now, without these organizations and without these people that provided the initial types of support, it is more difficult to distribute information and um, assess the needs of the communities. But of course, these uh, challenges can be addressed. People just have to talk more and to interact more with the Ukrainians themselves. But of course, there you have the language barrier. So yeah, there are challenges all the time. And uh, they are simply evolving and whatever we consider now as being solved tomorrow, it's something else that uh, comes up as a challenge and a problem to be, um, to be solved. Would you say there were a lot of positives as well? I am a Romanian national. So going to Romania for this mission and seeing the entire response, I can say I was extremely proud of my country and my, uh, my country men how they responded to this crisis. It was a huge positive aspect to see the support of the community, of uh, simple people, 
because in the end, especially in the beginning, the crisis was answered by the regular people. And yes, I think it was a huge positive point uh, from my perspective to see on the ground. Mikos? The positive things that I would see with the response is that uh, definitely that there there has been such an overwhelming support for this. I do think that it's very positive to see that Europe has been that welcoming and I really hope that this will continue and that uh, you know people stick in there and, and understand that this might be something that's not going to go away in the short term. We're going to have to be there in the long haul and that we're going to have to continue to provide support to these people in need and um, everybody in need. And I hope that I was able to, to contribute my small part to that through my, my deployment. And I, Katalin said as well that uh, he was very proud of, of the response. And I think it's, for me, it's great to, to be able to work directly with these things because I, I feel that they do have an impact. And, and uh, it's nice to see that, uh, that you can, you know, at least in a small way, contribute to something that you, you feel is important. Okay, well... Thank you very much for sharing uh, your stories from your missions over the the past few months. And uh, we'll put more information in the show notes. So if people are interested, they can find out more about what ECDC and WHO and all the other organizations we're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you found this episode informative. You can find more information in today's show notes. If you would like to know more about ECDC, please visit ecdc.europa.eu or you can follow us on social media for the latest news.